I want to talk about two, I want to talk about two things, two things this morning. Two profoundly practical themes and two themes that pervade the book of Isaiah. They're ideas that, you've prob- that, that, that you probably have thought about but have probably struggled to apply because they just kind of seem out there. But I assure you they are not. The two themes are these, the holiness of God and the kingship of God. If we don't understand these two things, then the scriptures don't make a lot of sense. So let's take a look at what they mean here in Isaiah 6. So the first question is, where are we in this book? We're, we're six chapters in, and we've received a number of prophecies from Isaiah. Words of judgment that if, if Jerusalem and Judah don't heed them, then judgment is going to be heaped upon their heads. We're told that the people of God are greedy, that they exploit the poor, that they try to use religion to justify their evil, that they fail to be hospitable to outsiders and other evils. But in these chapters, in chapters 1 to 5, we we hope against hope that maybe the people will turn and maybe the Lord will spare them. Isaiah 6 spares us from that naive optimism. The end, which I will tell you from the beginning, is that God's judgment is coming and no one will be able to stop it. Now, what we need is context for that event. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. I want you to imagine two things. On one side, imagine, imagine watching the new Black Panther movie on this screen. So like from where you are, you're watching it on this screen. Also, the movie's amazing, so go see it. But now, but now I want you to, but it, that you, you've got that experience. And then, imagine walk, and then imagine watching it at the IMAX theater in Melbourne, Australia, which has a screen that is 75 feet tall. That's five stories. It's just a screen. Or the planetarium at the, at the, at the Smithsonian, where you, where you lean back and it's just a giant dome, and it just becomes an immersive screen. That fills you with awe. Seeing it on a smartphone screen is just kind of like dinky. But this is the picture that Isaiah is beginning this chapter with. Because King King Uzziah reigned for 52 years before he died of leprosy. And death is already a deeply humiliating and painful and humbling thing to go through. And if the process is slow, what you see in people, you see a regression back to infancy. A regression back to utter dependence upon those around you. And for those of us who pride ourselves on self-sufficiency, this may actually be our greatest fear. And Uzziah died not just like that, but in excruciating pain. All of that is wrapped up in those words, in the year that King Uzziah died. The king dies, these, 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 these hopes, these, these political hopes die with him. But then, Isaiah sees the Lord. And, and, in that, and in that text, it's not, the, it's, not the, it's not the divine name in the text. It's the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And so basically, the king dies, and then I saw the real king. And this king's majesty floored me, Isaiah says. He can't even describe the Lord, as no one can. All he sees are these, are these burning angels, seraphs, where seraph just means burning. All he sees is fire, fire with wings. 
and 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 all he can and all and, and all he can see is the hem of the Lord's robe because because this because the size of this vision is so fully beyond his comprehension. Add to that, these, these burning ones are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Hebrew word is kadash, kadash, kadash. He's just hearing it over and over and over again. So something that's going to be, I think, really important for us is to understand what it means to be holy. And I've said this before, but for many of us, when we think about holiness, we think about moral uprightness. But that's not fundamentally what holy means. The word holy means to be set apart for a particular purpose. And so that's, if that's the primary meaning of the word, then what does that mean for God? Think about this. The, the angels are already ridiculous looking and terrifying. Every time we encounter angels in the scriptures, like they terrify people. I would think being met with things with wings and on fire, I'd be like, this, this is weird. I don't know what's going on. But, but as strange as these angels are, they can't stop talking about how set apart God is. And not just regular holy, thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that gets repeated three times. Because this God of Israel is built different. He's not, he's not like the gods of the other nations. And this is why Isaiah responds in the way that he does. He, he recognizes that he in no way deserves to stand in front of this God, so he curses himself. So woe to me is. It's a curse to himself because he recognizes his own uncleanness, his own impurity before a God who is unspeakably pure. And in the face of that personal inadequacy, the messenger of God, a seraph, takes a burning coal and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth. And, and, and we're told that it takes, away, it takes away Isaiah's guilt and atones for his sin. This is an act of foreshadowing. Because God's people are only going to be able to be saved through a purifying burning. Which is a terrifying, it's a terrifying prospect. But in order for us to dig into the implications of God's holiness, I think we need to read, we need to hear the rest of this text. So the voice of the Lord goes out asking for someone to be sent on God's behalf. And the newly redeemed Isaiah eagerly cries out, here am I, send me. And then he gets the weirdest and the hardest prophetic call in the entire scriptures. Listen to Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 to 13. He said, the Lord said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. You could read the first five chapters and, and think there's a, there's a chance that things, things might work out for Jerusalem and Judah. And this word from the Lord dashes that hope. Not only is judgment sure, but it's secured by the Lord. He's telling Isaiah, it's your job to tell the people not to understand and not to hear and ultimately not to turn. And you think, this is, this is weird. Why would, why would a prophet ever say something like this? Jesus actually says the same thing in the Synoptic Gospels when he explains why he speaks in parables. 
And Jesus' point is the same as Isaiah's, that the inability to understand is itself an act of judgment. And the ability to understand is a gift. It just so happens that with the people of Jerusalem and Judah, most are getting the judgment. And according to these verses, that judgment is total. Cities ruined and emptied, houses deserted, fields raised, people scattered. And then on top of that, when there are some people left, they're going to be kicked when they're down. Why? Why all of this destruction? Two reasons. The holiness of God and the kingship of God. When we, when we hear that God is holy, 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 kadash, 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 remember that what we mean is that he's set apart. That he's not like anything or anyone else. But, there's the, but, but the other most important thing, I think, to understand about God's holiness is that he's not the only person who's supposed to be holy. Because he calls a people in order to be holy, too. Shows up multiple times in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In the next verse, he says, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, 26 sums it up very nicely. Thus you are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. You see, the Lord reveals his own set-apartness and then, and then immediately applies it. As he is, so are we supposed to be. So the Lord doesn't just kind of articulate his holiness just to flex on folks. He does so to remind us that he has called us to join him, that he's called us to be as he is and to belong to him. And, and he doesn't just mean that for you personally. He means that for all of his people. But judgment comes because the people of God refuse the very thing that's meant to define them. They're supposed to operate by a different logic than the world around them because they're called to be a holy people. You see, God, God, God freed them from slavery, and then he gave them a law where their, where, their, where their identity was fundamentally rooted in the fact that God had freed them from oppression. And so he tells them over and over again, don't let oppression and exploitation in your midst, not just because it's wrong in the abstract, but because you know that it's wrong, because you've experienced it. It may, have been, it may be present in every other human society, but it was not to be so in the household of God. Consider the fact, consider the idea that it's like, it's the colonized becoming the colonizer. It's the abused becoming the abuser. This is the kind of reality that the Lord, that the Lord knows, and so he gives the people a law to avoid that particular outcome. And yet that's precisely what the people of God do. They're given laws to curb their desires to accumulate because every human civilization has to deal with that impulse. But care for the poor and the marginalized was built, in the very, it's, it's built into the very constitution that God gave his people. Why? Because they were meant to be different. But they squandered it. Even if, but here's the thing, even if the people refuse to be holy, God does not have that option. God can't not be holy. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the fire of God's holiness will either be a consuming fire or a refining fire. 
So then what might holiness look like for us? Here's one example, or kind of a summary that's going to seem kind of mundane, but it's actually very, very important. For us, one of the things that holiness means is, a, is, that, we are, is that we are committed to relentlessly doing the right thing for the right reason. Let me give an example. Why don't you kill your neighbor? There are probably a few reasons, right? Maybe you don't have anything against them. Maybe you think it would be really inconvenient with the police, like jail is bad, like it would, it'd, be in, it'd be inconvenient. Maybe you don't have any weapons at hand. Like each of these are reasons that are good enough to convince me not to kill my neighbor. But part of you also knows that that's not enough to be obedient to the, com to the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And you're right. None of those reasons are Christian reasons not to kill. But what is the Christ-like reason not to kill your neighbor? It's that you're too busy loving them to kill them. Why don't you envy your neighbor? Is it, is it because you've convinced yourself that you can't have what they have? So it would just kind of be a waste of energy? Is it because you don't have the resources or the, where, or, or the wherewithal to take it from them? Or is it because you're so consumed with gratefulness to the Lord that you don't have time or energy to envy? Why avoid pornography? Is it just because of the shame and the damage that it does to your relationships? Or is it because it's a, it's a devastating failure to love your neighbor when you invest in an industry that makes billions of dollars off, off of sexual exploitation, that kills by depression and disease and wears away at the souls of all those involved? Luke 6.32 has another great example. Jesus tells us this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Now, Jesus says this is mercy, but this is also holiness. Note the way that Jesus frames it. Everybody can treat others in the way that they themselves are treated. It's easy for us to return like for like. It's much harder for us to relentlessly love, to take initiative, to, to seek someone's good when there's no guarantee that they'll do the same to you. And that's one piece of the holiness of God. He's, he's set apart in how he loves, and we're to be set apart in how we love. And the Lord judges his people in the book of Isaiah because they have failed this primal command. They have failed to be holy as God is holy. They constantly sought to live as the nations did, to think as the nations did, to oppress as the nations did, to exploit as the nations did, to use power for domination as the nations did. Think of the Lord's disappointment, of his heartbreak. But the thing is, God's God's holiness, like, like all of his attributes, is not separate from his other characteristics. Because he's not just holy, he's, he's also the king, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, as some translations will say, a Lord who, who, who marshals armies. And, and, and as king, he, he rules a kingdom. And as any king would want, he wants a people devoted to him and to his ways. But unlike other kings... He doesn't want a people devoted to him just to pump himself up. No, the Lord calls us to be holy and to be his people because he knows that he is the only source of all good things. 
of all joy, of all peace, of all power. And he calls us to share in that joy. And it's a persistent call over and over and over and over and over again. And what we see at the end of Isaiah 6, the the utter judgment of the people, the leveling of cities, of houses, of fields, what it is, and I don't want you to miss this, what it is is the Lord removing everything from the people that distracts them from him. He's taking everything away from them that distracts them from the ultimate reality that he's been trying to drive in them from the beginning, that the Lord is king, the only king. And if there's anything that keeps you from living in light of that reality, the Lord is willing to take it from you. Cities are leveled because of people's trust in political power. Houses are deserted because of people's trust in comfort and security. Fields are ruined because of people's trust in their own resources. Sometimes the only times when we trust the Lord are when there's nowhere else to turn. And the first thing that's going to come into your mind when I, when I say that is that that sounds cruel. God's, is God just out to take stuff from me? No. The Lord's primary concern is to draw you to himself. Because he is the fount of all joy and all peace and every good thing. But we're really easily distracted. And so sometimes the Lord has to pop us upside the head to remind us. Graciously sometimes, but sometimes it hurts a little bit. But how do I know this? It's because the judgment in the end of Isaiah 6 is actually not utter. It's not, it's not total. It's not, it's not complete. He doesn't wipe everybody out. As the Lord purified Isaiah's lips with a coal, the people of God would be purified by the flames of God's judgment. Some would be consumed, but as verse 13 says in the second half, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy, note the word, Holy seed will be the stump in the land. When the judgment comes through, only the holy will survive. But what if you're not holy? What if you say that you're a member of the kingdom, but you constantly stumble and fall, as many of us do? What recourse do you have? What if if you're constantly looking to worldly best practices rather than divine best practices? What if, what if your mind constantly strays to elevating yourself instead of caring for your neighbor? Well, Israel had to have everything taken from them and to be thrown into exile. And by the end of the Old Testament, all had not been restored to them. But then, the king decided to put his final plan in place. This holy, holy, holy king, the triune God, one of their number, decided to take on flesh. This king became one of us, both to teach us and to save us. And the powers and the principalities recognized him as a threat to their hegemony and to, the, and to their control. And so they killed him. They killed our Savior, Jesus Christ. But death could not hold my Savior down. And so he got up with all power in his hand. But not only was he raised from the dead, but he also ascended. And when the holy, holy, holy son left, he didn't leave his people alone. He left them with a gift, a holy, holy, holy gift, the Holy Spirit. Not just to make you holy, but to make us holy, to make this community a holy community, to set us apart, not in a sense of superiority, but in the sense that we're to be a bright beacon into a dark world, that there's a different way to live, a different way to think, a different way to work, and a different way to serve. 
Yeah, it's hard, but this is precisely why God gave us God's very self in order to do it. Lecrae's got a great line in his song, Still in America. He says, I'm still in America where church is a Broadway production for relevance. We traded the kingdom to build an empire so people don't trust us apparently. And this is the, and this is, this is the political theology that many of us ascribe to. Empire building. This is mosaic, so I come after everybody's neck. When, 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 when folks are beholden to either of our political parties, we see this precise issue. If you are, if you are beholden to the Democratic Party, you're beholden to the desires of a capitalistic market, regardless of the moral value of said desires. If you're beholden to, to the Republican Party, you're often beholden to opportunistic, often racist folks willing to foolishly incite political violence. But what binds them together is a deep investment in the continuation of American empire, a project that we, as Christians, have no business propping up. In the past week, because of the elections, and you're gonna hear this again probably in 2024, people are gonna use the language that the future of American democracy is at stake. And yeah, it, like it could be, but my primary concern as your pastor is not that this nation survives. It's that your soul thrives, that you remember where your, citizen, where, where your citizenship really lies, and that you remember that we're pilgrims, not emperors. And so, so we can't trade, we cannot trade the kingdom of God for anything, much less an empire. Because there's something that, that we know about empires, that empires fall. Also, in Daniel and Revelation, earthly empires are referred to as beasts, contrary to the kingdom of God. But as Antonio Gonzalez says, the kingdom of God is a kingdom with a human face, the face of Jesus. And it's a shared kingdom. It's not a kingdom that's rooted in domination. It's a kingdom where the Lord is calling us to himself so that in the end, when he fully redeems us, we will rule alongside him. And what he does is he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't judge us and, re, and remove our distractions just to drive us into the dirt. He does it to prepare us to rule with him. And so I'm calling you every day to a work of preparation. Of preparing, for that, of preparing for that lifestyle and for that future. So when you go to work, consider this question. What is holiness in this context? How does the Lord call me to act and think distinctly? This is the most important question that you can ask yourself in any context, in any relationship, or in any moment. What does the Lord ask of me in this moment? Now, what do I want to do? What feels right? Whatever. What does the Lord ask of me in this moment, in this place? If you have been set apart for his purpose, which is what holy means, then that's going to be our first concern. So let's say that a friend or coworker comes to you and tells you that they're, they're being exploited, they're being taken advantage of, they're being mistreated. You have an option. You can sit by and encourage them, or you can stand in the gap with them. You can stand alongside them in solidarity. You can take the risk of loving them, relentlessly seeking their good, even if that means confronting the one who is exploiting them. Because this is what the Lord has called us to do. Not to passively stand in the midst of evil, but to actively resist in the name of love. Martin Luther King said this in reference to the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, I imagine that the first question that the priest and the Levite who passed him by the first question they asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? 
But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's our question. Holiness is in many ways an internalization and a living out of that ethos. And so, if you, so that also means if you find yourself in a job or in a situation or a relationship where it is impossible to robustly obey the Lord, I encourage you to get out. I encourage you to get out because I want you to know that you have a community that the Lord has called that can and will support you when you make that costly decision of, of discipleship. It's why we gather as a church. We gather to remind ourselves of that cost, but also to remind one another that we bear that cost together. So when, when, when in your relationships you're tempted to treat others as they have treated you, rather than how the Lord has called you to treat them, remember the words of the Lord. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Because remember, ultimately, you're not going to be accountable to that person for how you treated them. You're all, you and I are going to be accountable to the Lord. Isaiah had the unenviable position of preaching to a stubborn people the inevitability of judgment. God would remove from them their land and their temple, two things that dictated the identity of the people of God. But he didn't ultimately do it to hurt them. He did it to remind them, as he wants to remind us, that the only foundation that will not shake is the Lord. So, dear brother and dear sister, Build your lives upon him. Daily depend on his love and his guidance to do what it is that he, that he has called you to do. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday are all holy days. Yes, the Sabbath and the Lord's day is, is set apart for its own purpose. But every day is set apart for the Lord. Every day is a day to praise the Lord. Every day is a day to love the Lord. Every day is a day to love your neighbor. Every day is a day to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to think in terms of that logic, and to bear witness to the world that the gospel changes you, it changes us, and it will change the entire world. Let's pray.